Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to the 11th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Hope everyone had a good Labor Day weekend. And on a personal note, I um, finally made the step and got engaged over the weekend, Matt. So Congratulations, was, uh, buddy. So happy you. for you. Yeah, so it was an exciting weekend for um, me and my fiance Kenzie Fell, and uh, my whole family was there. Her mom was there. So um, we celebrated over the weekend. So it was a, a good weekend uh, for my family. So as always, just want to take the first couple of minutes to recap the performance for the month of the year of the major indexes that we track. Um, The data for the monthly numbers this week are as of the close on August 31st. So it's the uh, performance for the month of August on the monthly numbers. And then the yearly numbers are as of market close on September 4th. And this data is from stockcharts.com. So for the month of August, the S&P 500 was down 1.81% for the month and is currently up 17.19% for the year. The Dow Jones was down 1.32% for the month and is up 14.97% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index is down 2.6% for the month and up 20.22% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index was down 4.93% for the month and is up 11.10% for the year. The International Index X United States was down 2.73% for the month and up 7.70% for the year. The three-month Treasury yield currently at 1.98% for the month, and both the two-year treasury yield and 10-year treasury yield uh, both sitting at 1.47% right now. Um, So we ended the month of August only approximately 3% off all-time highs uh, in the S&P 500, Matt. So for all of the noise that was out there during the month, it really wasn't too bad. If you were just watching the uh, financial news, Mark, Mm-hmm. You, it felt like 10, 11, 12% off the highs. Right, right, right yeah. I mean, so they were really digging in in August. Yeah, yeah, and obviously we had some big swings back and forth, but, you know, we ended on August 31st just, you know, around 3% off all-time highs, and it feels like a lot worse than that right Absolutely now. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. So um, big news and headlines from the past week. Um, We got some good news out of Hong Kong and China. Um, The Hong Kong chief executive, Carrie Lam, announced uh, yesterday on September 4th that she's going to pull the extradition bill that has caused a lot of this uh, recent unrest in Hong Kong over the past few months. So, um, Does this have any impact on or effect on U.S.-China trade, Matt? I think it's huge. Um, you know, here's my initial thoughts when this news came out. The um, Hong Kong leadership, Mark, has been running full page ads 
in financial newspapers around the world over the last week or so, trying to reinsure um, business people uh, that making a continued investment in Hong Kong was a wise idea despite what's going on there. And that began to kind of show their concern. And then imagine if China were to have gone into Hong Kong with an iron fist and what that would have done to the investor psyche. And um, this is a big psychological um, decision that I think is very smart on the Chinese part. Uh, Definitely um, is a different route than most people thought they were going to take, including myself, um, because historically they have never shown an aptitude to show any concession. Um, And so this is a big, big move. And then let's combine that with what you and I heard this morning about U.S.-China trade talks. So they're going to resume talks in October in Washington. Yeah, that's pretty big. Not on neutral ground, not in China. They're coming here. I'm just saying that's kind of interesting. You're starting to see multiple different types of tea leaves. Yeah, yeah. So to me, I take this as a little bit more of of a big shift, and we'll see if it has legs. You know, we're, we're two for two, you know, and, and yeah. a very big <clears throat> policy shift on their part. Yeah, and I think um, it just begs to the fact more that both sides really want to get some sort of deal done before um, the election in the United States. And on, you know, Trump's side, he wants to have something to campaign on. But then on China's side, they're like, okay, if Trump wins again, you know, he's probably going to be a lot more heavy on us, um, you know, given the fact that we didn't come to a conclusion before his reelection. And they're kind of worried of that. Exactly. I mean, you know, for a while, everyone in Marketplace and Wall Street kept saying, you know, it's in the Chinese best interest to, you know, delay, delay, delay till the election. And um, because if Trump does not win, the perception is, is that the Chinese would get a better deal. Whereas on the flip side of that, as you were kind of indicating, you know, if they delay, 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 and Trump does win another four years, what do you think is going to happen for four more years after that? He's really... It'll be a lot. People thought he was aggressive now. He's going to be a lot more aggressive, in my opinion, if if he does win and we don't have a deal before the election. Perfectly said. Yep. Um, So then just a couple more comments on the markets. We've kind of just been chopping back and forth since the beginning of August. And the market just seems to be range bound for the time being until we either break to the upside or to the downside. So I think, Matt, that this is kind of a good time where investors kind of just sit on their hands and not do much in the short term until we get some sort of larger confirmation. I would absolutely agree. I mean, you know, when you have, and I've, I've said it the last couple of podcasts, when you have very few things that the market's focused on, which in my opinion enhances volatility, I think at that point, you got to remember that um, temporarily the fundamentals of these companies, how they're doing, kind of get thrown out the door. Yeah. And I think it's best at that point, as kind of you mentioned, when you're range bound and really choppy, sitting on your hands is not exactly the worst decision. Yeah. Yeah. And in my view, you know, I still haven't seen a massive breakdown in the aggressive sectors relative to the S&P 500. So uh, the tech sector, um, communications, financials, consumer discretionary, and to me, that signals that you know this bull market might not just be over yet. Um, yes, defensive sectors have done well over the past few months, but it hasn't been convincing enough to me to flip me to completely bearish. 
Yeah, and I think, again, the data on the bearish um, or, say, the defensive stocks, I'm sorry, I think is skewed. It's skewed because interest rates have come down so much. So now, and we've highlighted it on this podcast and in prior weeks, the average dividend yield is so high that they're yielding more than a 10-year treasury note. Exactly. And so I think the recent rally in the defensive stocks um, is not 100% um, traditionally because the market's toppy or, um, you know, that could be the case. Could but be. what I'm getting at is there's a lot of demand because rates are so low in the defensive stocks. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even I didn't even think of that when I was um, you know prepping for this. But I mean, people are just seeking that yield, and that's where you're going to get it in, in the defensive names. In to throw it even one step further, Mark, I think they're going with a lot of what I would call name recognition uh, stocks. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to throw out names, but you know, open up your pantry. Yeah. Right, and you're going to see names. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on to articles, tweets, and research from the week that we found interesting. Um, I saw an article by Janet uh, Laval on the website Think Advisor that outlines some notes from an LPL strategist by the name of John Lynch, who some of you may have heard of before. And it's about the yield curve inversion and specifically um, when the two-year treasury yields more than the 10-year treasury. And currently, they're yielding roughly the same. Um, so a couple things caught my eyes here, Matt. And the first was that Lynch said during the last five economic expansions, the U.S. economy peaked an average of 21 months after the spread between the two-year and the 10-year yields inverted. So that just happened this month. So looking back at historical data, it doesn't say that we're on the brink of a recession. And the second point was that Lynch also said that historically the S&P 500 index has rallied an average of 22% from the first inversion to the eventual economic peak. So again, evidence of you know a recession is not imminent at this time based on historical data. So yeah, I mean, I think uh, in the past we've thrown out the general rule of thumb, um, you know, historically about 18 months mm-hmm. right in the podcast. So this kind of narrows that down to. You know, with the time span, he looked at 21 months. You know, again, I think it's um, it's a data input, right? And I think that what we do really good as a firm is looking at various different data points. We put our own weightings to those data points, and it helps us come up with an overall investment thesis, yeah. right? And so for people listening to this podcast, I think it's just definitely one of those data points that you should definitely be paying attention to. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, That's kind of all I had from in terms of articles, Matt. Did you have anything else? I got one. It's pretty interesting. So uh, this is from a um, Swiss uh, economist. Gentleman's name is Frederick Ducrosette. And I probably got that completely <laughs> wrong. Okay. That's okay. So, um, but here's the point. So, this was um, issued, this note, September 3rd. And um, the first rise in the World Manufacturing PMI Index occurred in August following 15 consecutive months of declines, Mark. Now, the index is still below 50, 
50 is the over under for indicating expansion or contraction. Yeah, can you just for the people listening, can you just explain explain the PMI and the meaning of that and sure. the over under 50 reading? Sure. So this one this reading came in at uh, 49 and a half. So this is what we would call a purchaser's manager's index. And it has to do with obviously manufacturing. And so what this is is a sentiment indicator that goes out um, to uh, companies uh, with their viewpoint in various areas of how their business is doing. And uh, I use the term sentiment because it not only includes this is how it is now, but also it includes an outlook uh, okay. component to it. Okay. okay? So um, the over-under to indicate expansion um, compared to the prior month mark is 50. Okay. The degree at which you go above 50 will indicate the degree of expansion or contraction, mm -hmm. right? So this number came in at 49.5, showing a minor contraction month over month. If you were to see a figure that is, say, 45, that would be pretty dramatic, mm -hmm. and that would indicate a very big contraction right. month over month. And on the flip side, if next month we saw a reading of 60, it would... You know, it would show an aggressive Tremendous. expansion. Yeah, and remember, yeah. In, in the in the survey that goes out, a component of that uh, could be the current state. And remember, there's a component of their uh, feelings of the future. Right. So it is a little objective. We yeah. just have to know that, right? But no, I thought it was interesting. It finally broke after 15 consecutive months of declines, finally um, stabilized. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Another data point. Yeah, another data point. That definitely be something to keep our our eyes on because you know the only data points we've been getting globally, I feel like, have been negative over the past you know two three months. So yeah, and especially in the manufacturing side with all the unknowns with trade, and maybe some of it is just um, you know the numbers got so bad consistently they finally stabilized. Right. You know we'll see. Could be a one off, maybe not. I Could be. I just yeah. thought it was interesting. Yeah. Very. Very. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, unless you had anything else, Matt. No, I'm good, Mark. Okay. Um, so I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal on August 30th called um, The Little Differences Between 401ks and IRAs Can Cost Big Bucks by Laura Saunders. And Laura gives example an example, a real-life example, how a couple got dinged pretty good on their tax bill because they received advice from a professional that was just incorrect. Um, even though there's a lot of similarities between 401ks and IRAs, there are several differences too. So let's just take a little dive in and see what those differences are and what people need to be aware of. And this was probably... And I might have said this before about articles that we use to talk about the financial planning topic of the week, but this was one of my favorites, I think, Matt. It was pretty good. Good article. Um, in terms of um, outlining some things that people need to be aware of. And once again, this is from the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. uh, title of the article is The Little Differences Between 401ks and IRAs Can Cost Big Bucks. Yes, by Laura Saunders. Uh, from August 30th. Yes. Yes. Yep. So um, <clears throat> Laura begins by saying that individual retirement accounts and 401k plans share many features in common, but they also have subtle differences. Not knowing the nuances can raise a tax bill, sometimes by a lot. Um, so she goes on to say that these accounts are not the same, and one upstate New York couple ran smack into an arbitrary difference that raised their tax bill 65%. 
So in 2015, um, this couple needed a bit more cash for a down payment on a house in a good school district. So the couple withdrew about uh, a little under $7,000 from uh, the spouse's 401k uh, retirement plan. So the couple knew that they'd owe some taxes, but um, you know they said that a plan representative told her that they would avoid the 10% penalty because the payout was for their first home. And it turns out, Matt, that this advice was wrong. So the problem here was that the down payment rule for first-time home buying only applies to individual retirement accounts and not 401ks. Yep. So this is one of those key differences people need to understand when it comes to IRAs versus 401ks. Um, so if you're a first-time home buyer, um, you can take money out of your IRA up to a certain amount and avoid the 10% penalty because you're under 59 and a half. Correct. You're still going to get taxed Tax on that income, but as you're, ordinary income, as ordinary income, but you're not going to pay the 10% penalty. On but top of that. Yeah. But that's only for IRAs. That is not available in 401ks. That's right. So what we see a lot with 401ks, Mark, is someone will call us up. They will be, say, under 59 and a half. They're still actively employed. And they'll sit there and say, you know, I want to get some money out of this 401k. And then less and less plans are having loan provisions, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the only other option? Hardship withdrawal. Yep. So then we usually read off the IRS listing of what defines as a hardship. And I think where some of these um, plan representatives get into trouble is the hardship rules allow for the purchase of a home to get money out. But as you highlighted, it doesn't allow you to avoid the 10% penalty. penalty. It's just allowing you to actually get the, get money, the money out. out. Yeah. And I think that that is a very uh, big difference. Yeah. 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 For and you sure. were highlighting that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so there's a couple other um, differences, Matt, like four other ones that I want to talk about. Yeah, that, I think um, it'd be great. Laura mentioned here in the article. So um, <clears throat> the first one has to do with education expense withdrawals. So Laura says that payouts before age 59 and a half from an IRA that are used for higher education tuition, books, and other costs are exempt from the 10% penalty. Similar withdrawals from 401k plans incur the 10% penalty. So similar to the first-time homeowners, homeowners exception, IRAs allow people to skirt the 10% penalty, and 401ks do not when it comes to higher education costs. Mm. Um, number two is the required minimum distributions. So mandatory IRA payouts begin at age 70 and a half under the current law, and the account owner has until April 1 of the following year to take the first payout. So this is regardless, Matt, of if the account owner is still working or not. If you Correct. own an IRA... You're working, you're not working. Doesn't the, matter. The year after you turn 70 and a half, you have to take a required minimum distribution. That's right. And do you want to explain what an RMD or a required minimum distribution is? I think that's good to point out. Yeah. So an RMD is a IRS calculation that begins at the age of 70 and a half. It is for your pre-tax traditional IRA money, okay? And there is a IRS supplied calculator 
that um, computes mortality, okay? And it spits back a minimum percentage that you have to take out annually from your IRA account, whether the person wants to or not. Why? The government wants to tax the money. The money went in before tax. It has grown tax deferred, but comes out taxable. So for an individual that is in their early 70s, a rough number to throw out there is about 3.5% of their account value. Okay, yeah. Yeah. As the person gets older, this percentage grows because their life expectancy is less. less. Okay, So for someone that's, say, in their early 80s, a rough figure might be closer to, say, 5%. But this is just rough. But the reason I want to highlight this is you know, people are able to kick the can for a long time. But eventually, with those pre-tax savings, Gotta pay the, the government's gonna gonna start making you tap into that. And people think, as you highlight it, Mark, but I'm still working. I don't want to take money out of this account. Mm-hmm. They don't have a choice, as you highlight. Right for IRAs. For IRAs. So going over to the 401k side, um, with 401k plans, Laura continues on to say that the deadline is April one, following the year the worker retires. Or turn 70 and a half, whichever is later. So usually 401k plans, Matt, will have a provision called the still working provision. Um, and that means that if you're still working at the company, you can delay your required minimum distribution from your 401k until you retire. Um, but not all 401k plans have that provision. I would say that a lot of them do, and it's, you know, kind of the standard that most of them do, but please check your 401k plan documentation to make sure this is a provision because if a company doesn't have that provision, then you have to start taking RMDs from the 401k the year after you turn 70 and a half. And where that information would be for the listeners is it's going to be in something called the uh, plan summary document. And in a plan summary document, it's going to highlight a lot of the details on the plan, including uh, this topic. Yeah. And then we could go into a lot more detail. There's more rules about um, you know people that own more than five percent of a company that provide uh, a 401k plan. But if anyone else wants more information on that, reach out to us. Reach out to us or send us an email, and we can get you that information. Um, the third thing that I wanted to talk about was age 55 to 59 and a half payouts. So this is a good one. Um, yeah, the article goes on to say that savers don't owe the 10% penalty on withdrawals from a 401k before age 59 and a half if they were at least 55 in the year that they left their job. But a 10% penalty applies to IRA withdrawals before the owner is 59 and a half except for certain exemptions, which we talked about previously. So Matt, let's say that someone retires at age 56. Okay. And they have their 401k and they're depending on that 401k for income in retirement. Living expenses, got it. So it would actually benefit them to keep that money in their 401k to take withdrawals because they're not going to get hit with that 10% penalty as opposed to rolling it over into an IRA where, you know, before 59 and a half, they're going to get hit with the 10% penalty regardless. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I mean, there's some ways around it. There's something called a um, section 72T, which yeah. allows somebody 
to take equal payments uh, from an IRA before the age of 59 and a half. There's uh, some rules um, that are associated with it. Um, it's a lot cleaner that if you're going to have some living expenses, say someone separates at 56, you know, I would maybe have them keep back, hey, this is your living expenses for the next three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Keep that in a 401k, roll the rest to an IRA. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's a good, that's a, that's a, that's a good plan. Yep. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to always roll over your entire balance to, you know, another account. I think that's a, a big misconception Absolutely. in the industry Yep. Um, that people think that they have to do that. Yep. Um, so yeah, so moving on to the, um, the next topic was borrowing. So, dun, um, dun, dun. yeah, borrowing. Yeah, we can get into that. We can probably talk. We can probably have a whole podcast episode on 401k loans, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> we got some stories. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the article says uh, about borrowing that many 401k plans allow participants to borrow from them. The interest rates can be lower and the terms better than with other consumer debt like uh, credit cards or other personalized loans. However, mortgage lenders sometimes don't allow a 401k loan to count for purposes of a down payment. And I didn't even really realize that until I read this article, man. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, I, I didn't know that either. So, and, you know, this is why, you know, some people, like in this example that Laura outlined, that this is why people took money out of their 401k was for the down payment of a house. Um, so by contrast, borrowing against an IRA is prohibited and doing so will terminate the account. So before I go on, any comments on 401k loans you want to yeah, mention? I think the biggest issue I see with 401k loans is the short-sightedness by, um, by participants to, it's easy to do them usually, but if they look at especially for younger people, the loss of the compounding effects of not having that money in the market mm -hmm. and then paying it back over five years, especially at a young age. Um, you know, we could show statistics uh, regarding what it could do to a example 401k balance. Right. It's not good. Yeah. But what about the argument of you're paying yourself back, Matt? Yeah, you know, I hear that all the time. And, and um, the biggest issue, once again, is you're losing the compounding effect of that money not being in the market. Yeah. And um, that's the biggest issue. Yeah. And um, for um, a new participant uh, presentation that we do uh, for a company, we highlight an example of somebody who uh, withdraws money um, to, um, does a loan, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, at a young age, and then 15 years later, takes out more money for their kids' post-secondary education. Right, and it shows the difference if they wouldn't have done it versus if they did have done it. Uh, what their ending 401k balance would be, and it's dramatic. Yeah, that's very dramatic. And so that's the issue I have with the loans. The other issue I have with the loans is, um, you know, it's kind of like potato chips. Mm -hmm. Once you have one, you can't stop. Yeah, and you know, I think. I don't have the exact statistic mark, but I would I would guess that you know the chances of someone taking one leads to two leads to three. It's just it tends tends not to there. be a good thing. Yeah. So I've seen more and more companies get rid of their loan provisions, and even though initially the 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 teammates or the staff doesn't like it initially, long term it's a very good decision. Yeah, I think so too. 
And one way to mitigate the side effects of 401k loans or just not taking 401k loans at all is making sure you have an emergency savings account um, and making sure your, you know, your credit is up to par so that when you do or have to go apply for loans that you can get more favorable interest rates. That's right. Um, and, you know, one thing that I actually, I was listening to another podcast, I think it was the Animal Spirits podcast with Ben Carlson and Michael Batnick. Okay. Uh, ben brought up a good point, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is why is why are credit card interest rates so high and continue to move higher when interest rates, you know, the overnight rate, you know, and interest rates set by the Fed are so low? And why don't people with better credit have access to, you know, say, interest rates on credit cards that are 7 or 8%? You know, yeah. That's I mean, just an interesting thought that I yeah, wanted to just I mean, just my, throw initial, out there. my initial <clears throat> reaction as you said that is um, A, you know, we're in a capitalistic society. These credit card companies, if they can get away with it, they're going to do it, mm-hmm. right? That's the first thing that comes to mind. And secondly, the people that have, um, say, good credit, they're paying off their balance every month. So, the so it's cre- not going to matter. Yeah, the credit card could say 20%. They couldn't care less. Yeah, right? yeah. Because they probably have that card for the, either the benefits or the rewards mm-hmm. that that card comes with. And they're probably not carrying a balance anyways. Yeah. So, you know, the whole thing about, you know, credit card um, interest rates continue to go up. If you think about, you know, all of the things that a bank offers, like all the products that they're selling it's probably the one thing that they can actually get away with raising the rates on. Yeah. <laughs> right? And For so they're sure. going to continue to do it. Yeah. And so the only thing that's stopping them, uh, my guess, of going above 30% is probably state laws. Yeah. That don't allow them <laughs> don't to do allow it. it. Yeah. But they probably would. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that we haven't had, you know, uh, and maybe it's because all the banks have a, you know, a non-formal agreement upon, you know, not coming in with a credit card that's, you know, 4% interest rate or 5% interest rate because, you know, when you have industries that, you know, have high margins or something like that, for example, you see competitors come in and cut their margins down to undercut the competitor. I'm just, I guess I'm just surprised we haven't seen that yet in the credit card or banking world yet. Yeah. I mean, it's probably only a matter of time before some sort of disruptor comes in and um, you know, maybe does that, mm-hmm. I think um, definitely is, is dangerous from the respect that, you know, if you have money that cheap and, and, and accessible, um, you know, usually the lower interest rate loans have a lot more underwriting involved. Yeah, yeah, so it's more scrutiny. Yeah, so maybe they come out with actually a card that has a lot of underwriting and maybe they start doing that. Yeah, huh? just a thought. It is a just good wanted thought. to share that. Yeah. Um, anything else from this week, Matt, that you wanted to throw out there? No, I know we'll talk about it next week again. Just um, next Fed meeting is coming up in two weeks, September 17th and 18th. Okay. And I just want to throw that out there. Okay. All right. Oh, and we do have, we actually have a question this week, Matt. I okay. forgot, we almost forgot. So yep. um, the question this week comes from Dennis, and Dennis asks, define what the terms long and short are when talking about stocks. When I am long on a stock, what position am I in? So I'll kind of take this first, Matt, and sure. then I'll you fill, can just I'll follow up. The yeah. Yep. So Dennis, when 
someone says you're long the stock, um, that means that you have bought shares in a in a stock and you're expecting that company's stock to go up. In value. <clears throat> in value. So that's just normal making a buy. Say you buy 100 shares of Apple, you're long 100 shares of Apple. Correct. So that's what that means. Yep. And when you're short, you're actually... Um, borrowing shares from someone else and selling those shares to someone else, expecting the price of that stock to go down. Mm-hmm. So, say um, you know you're short a hundred shares of Apple, you're expecting Apple's stock price to decline, where then you can buy it back cheaper and make a profit, yeah. and then give those shares back to whoever you borrowed it from. Correct. And that means you are short Apple. Yes. Anything else you want to throw in there, Matt? The thing I want to throw out there is when somebody is long a stock, let's take Mark's example of 100 shares of Apple. And um, whatever uh, dollar amount that you use to buy that stock, that is your maximum loss. Yes. Right? It can go to zero and you lose that investment. Correct. Whereas if somebody is short, and let's take a fictitious stock, ABC Inc., and it's at $50 a share, and you want to make a investment that is short, meaning that you are thinking the stock's gonna go down, the problem with shorting is you could actually lose more than 100%. Right, because that's where leverage comes into play. That's right, right. and then, so in essence, that $50 stock could go to 150. And if that were to occur, you would not only lose the value of your initial short position that you would lose more than that. Yeah. So someone, um, if they're gonna short, they have to have margin on their account, the ability mm-hmm. to borrow, and you were talking about leverage. Mm-hmm. So um, we um, usually recommend um, that if, if someone is going to be taking um, exposure and things going down, you wanna define what that risk is. And a lot of those individuals end up using options Correct. And in doing so, it defines what their loss is actually going to be. Yeah, because if you're short, you know, like you said, a stock at 50 and it goes to 150, you have unlimited loss potentials. You technically do. Yeah. Correct. You know. Yeah. So just be very, very careful uh, for listeners on the short side. Uh, that is definitely not for beginner, and I would even advocate for more experienced investors. Um, from afar, I've seen a lot more a lot more harm than good uh, for people that have attempted to make those types of trades. So yeah. tread lightly. Yeah, yeah. And you can just, you can I mean, you can go on Google and say, and Google something like short stock positions that have blown up. And even firms and hedge funds that have used those type of strategies have gotten absolutely whacked from taking short positions and having a stock go the other way. Absolutely, especially so. if it's concentrated, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not saying to do it or not to do it, but you just have to be aware of the risks that come with it. Perfectly said. So I hope that answered your question, Dennis. Um, if you have any follow-ups, again, and listeners, uh, keep the questions coming. Yeah, yeah, keep the keep the questions coming and let us know what you want to hear and what you want to talk about. Um, because again, this podcast is uh, supposed to be driven by you all. So um, we encourage um, the constant questions coming in from listeners going forward. So. Um, If you don't have anything else, Matt, then we'll kind of wrap up here. And 
Um, thank everybody for listening to the 11th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We uh, hope you all have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you all next week. See you guys next Thursday. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.